From all accounts, I understand that you've had a fantastic evening or afternoon, really, with Uncle Greg in our first study on Ecclesiastes 8 to the topic, Hear What the King Says. Now, the role of a king or queen, I understand he taught you, is to teach other people about God. And that's why we should stick close to the king. That in so doing, we learn how to conduct ourselves before God. He then showed that the difference between our human perspective of time and God's perspective of time is quite different. And it's very easy to get bogged down by the injustices of life, to get depressed by the degradation and the destruction of the environment, for example, or the way different groups of people are treated wrongly. The violence that we see in this world, the, the poor being oppressed, the people being going hungry. And yet the true solution isn't in protesting or lifting up our voices and joining movements against the evils of this world. For our power and our strength is grossly limited. Now that's not a cop-out, it's just a humble recognition of what's true. That we're not in positions where we can rid the world of its gross immorality, but we shall be soon. Instead, we put our confidence in God, as the scripture saith, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And in the meanwhile, we live lives in which we do good to all men. We live Christ-like lives now, trusting that the day will soon dawn, that Christ and his saints will overturn the world, the present disorder of things, and justice will roll down like rivers, and righteousness is a mighty stream. This isn't just our hope, this is God's promise. This is our destination. The destination of all those who will come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's something to be a part of. That's something to work towards. That's something to stay up late burning the midnight oil. If we only knew the value of the promise, well, we'd happily pay that price, wouldn't we? And that's what tonight's about, young people. Being reminded on some level of the glories of the future age to weigh it up, to consider it in our hearts like Solomon has, and to challenge ourselves to draw the same conclusions that he has. He has this remarkable ability to, to reduce things down to the bare essentials. And he does that by asking some big questions, as I'm sure you already know by studying Ecclesiastes this year for Suburban. Tonight, what we're gonna be doing is analyzing or pulling apart or dissecting chapter nine to see if we can have those same answers for ourselves. Answers to big questions. Like, like if we're all going to die anyway, what's worth living for? What's worth giving our time to? If death is our common fate, is there any way out? Does it really matter what I do with my life or should I just eat, drink, and be merry? Now this is the, the method that we're going to use to take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. But I want to just challenge you to think about this for one second. If you'll turn up 1 Kings with me, chapter 10. This just popped into my mind recently. And I wonder, which is always a good start for learning or considering things, wonder. I wonder if Ecclesiastes was written before or after the Queen of Sheba came and visited Solomon. So here's our topic for this evening, our destination, our common fate and life and death. And we start with this verse that we know from the conclusion of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It says, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he gave good heed, he listened, 
He sought out and he set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words. That which was written was upright, even words of truth. And I wonder if those are the words of truth that he spoke to the Queen of Sheba when she visited him. Verse 11 says, the words of the wise are like goads. They, they prod somebody in the right direction. And they're like nails fastened by the masters of assembly, which are given from one shepherd. And I reckon that's the one true God who taught Solomon and gave him wisdom. So here's our picture of the Queen of Sheba. Well, she's not in the picture, but that's Solomon. And I just want to read a little bit with you of 1 Kings chapter 10, just to set the scene. It says in 1 Kings chapter 10, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train or retinue, with camels that bear spices and very much gold, so she was quite wealthy, and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. You wonder what those questions were, don't you? Verse 4, when the queen of Sheba had seen all of Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and the cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of Yahweh, her breath was taken away. There was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in my own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit, I believed not thy words until I came and my eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not told to me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, that hear thy wisdom. And this is what she says. She says, Blessed be Yahweh thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because Yahweh loved Israel forever. She's been taught. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king all this stuff, 120 talents of gold and spices of very great store and precious stones. And there came no more such abundance of spices as which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram brought gold and Ophir and brought in from Ophir great plenty of almond trees and precious stones and, and so on and so forth. Verse 13, the king Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire whatsoever she asked besides that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now what do you think she was going to do when she went back home? What do you think she was going to tell them? She was starstruck. She was just absolutely beside herself with the teaching of Solomon about Yahweh. And so in, as a backdrop to Ecclesiastes 9 and these big questions that we look at this evening, I imagine that he had already thought about this. And perhaps those are the things that took her breath away. Those are the things that gave her hope of a better life to come. She had everything She had gold in abundance. She was queen. She ruled over people. And yet there were still driving questions that she asked. What's the point of life? What's the purpose? Is there any meaning? Is there any value? What should we be pursuing with our limited commodity of time? And young people, that's a question you and I both have to answer. So here's how we'll do it. We're going to take a a deep dive and look kind of at the 
verse-by-verse exposition of this chapter of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to go into some depth. And essentially what you're going to see is there's two, two parts to this story. You've got on the left hand the unbeliever or the unrighteous. And on the right hand, and those are the goats on the left, so to speak, those that reject God. We'll get to this verse here in a second. Essentially, we, we know the story from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 3. This is the first prophecy in the Bible. This is where God is punishing Adam and Eve and the serpent for the disobedience in the garden. So in Genesis 3.15, our first verse tells the story. And it says, And I will put enmity between thee, that is, the serpent and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So here you have the, the good and the evil, the two things outlined in the Bible, the great war, the great battle between those two forces. And here's the picture, the picture of Christ. And we know that that seed is Christ because of Galatians chapter 3. This is where we get the exposition. It says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of, as of one. And here's the definition of that seed. And to thy seed, which is Christ. And so here's our big picture. And on the right-hand side, well, we've got the believers or the righteous. And those are represented in Scripture as the sheep, the sheep and the goats. To the right side go the sheep, to the left go the goats. And that's a picture of the judgment when those that are Christ will be redeemed. Now, let's do our analysis. Let's dig in. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 at verse 1. This is what it says there. For all this considered in my heart to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knows either love or hatred by all that is before them. Now we're going to spend some time on this verse, so bear with me. And the first question is the righteous. You see it there? It says the righteous and the wise and their works, that's in the hand of God. Now my question for you young people is, is how do you become righteous? How does that happen? Yes, we could just leave that as a rhetorical question, but hopefully you're thinking in the meanwhile. And over on the right-hand side of the believer or the righteous, we know from this verse, this fundamental verse in Genesis 15, verse 6, we know this verse about Abraham. Abraham believed in the Lord, in Yahweh. And the Lord, God, counted it to him for righteousness. So whenever you see the word righteousness in Scripture, young people, you have to think about faith. You have to think about what it is you believe. And because this man, Abraham, believed what God said, that his seed would be as numerous as the, the stars in the heavens above, or as numerous as the sand below his feet, he believed that, and God said, for that I will count you righteous. So this is a representation of, of those that are, are believers. And that's what that first verse is talking about. For all this I considered my heart to declare all this, that the righteous, the believers, and the wise, and here's another question, how do you become wise? Is it because of your own strength? Is it because of your own ingenuity or cleverness? That's not how we become wise. The way that we become wise, as James tells us in chapter 1, straight away in verse 5, he says, If any of you lack wisdom, just ask God. God wants to give you wisdom. He gives it to all men liberally. He upbraids you not. He's not going to chastise you for asking for wisdom. Is that what you want? Do you want to be a wise person? You just want to bumble through life. Well, if that's what you want, 
And, and look, the beauty of that is so, so simple. The wisdom of that is so simple because it doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. Anybody can ask God for wisdom. You see, you see the beautiful simplicity and wisdom of that is such that, that it doesn't matter who you are on the face of the earth, whether you have high capacity or low capacity, all things are equal. Any single person on planet earth can ask God for wisdom. Do you, you see the divine construction of that? It's not based on aptitude, just ask God. And that's what James tells us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says it this way, let no man deceive himself. If any among you seem to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For as it is written, he takes the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Now that word vain or vanity shows up 37 times in Ecclesiastes. He keeps saying it's meaningless, it's meaningless, it's meaningless. It's just vain. Life is vain apart from God. But with God, there's great meaning in life. The littlest things that you do in, in helping somebody else to the kingdom of God has deep and great meaning because you're contributing to his family. That's not a small, small deal. That, that's, a, that's quite important. It's not vain. In fact, it's the exact and equal opposite. So we go back to our verse, the one we're really pulling apart here. We've only gotten through two words, the righteous and the wise, but both those things come from God. And then it says, in their works, now check this out. This is interesting. We know that faith without works is dead. But, but here's the thing that just, here's the thing that, that was such an epiphany, a light bulb on in my life, and that is, it's not my work. It's not me striving against my, my worst nature, my flesh. Here's the verse that just knocks me out. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, it is God which works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So you mean to tell me that if I'm not even willing to do the right thing, and I know what the right thing is, like Paul says, you know, that which I... Uh, there's a war in my members. I know what I should do, but I have trouble doing it. If, if that's you, and it is because you're human, and I am too, sometimes we know the right thing, young people, and we still have trouble doing it. Even the Apostle Paul had that battle. So God can make you willing. That's what that verse is telling us. And not only that, God says, I can work in you. If that's what you want, God is willing to work in you. It's no longer your work. It's not you doing the work anymore. It's not you muscling up or, or trying to find enough determination or willpower to, to do what you know you should do, but you can't really bring yourself to do it. God says, I will work in you both to do my, my good pleasure and my will. This shows up all over scripture. It's thematic. Psalm 127 verse 1 and 2 says it this way. And again, it's of Solomon. This is Solomon writing this psalm. He says, unless Yahweh builds the house, there's that word again, you labor in vain. You can build a magnificent structure. You can do all sorts of wonderful things in the truth, but unless God is involved, it's worth nothing. That's what that scripture is telling us. It has to be with God. In fact, it says, unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchmen work in vain. And this is just so interesting to me because this is how Paul looks at his life. Paul says, look, look, I'm crucified with Christ. When you're baptized, you're dead. It's no longer you that lives. That's what he says. See it in blue there? 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's very personal to Paul. It's not you doing the work anymore. It's not you directing the show or deciding where to go or what to do. It's it's actually about being pliable or moldable to what God will do through you for the good of his family. That's very hard to do. I'm not saying that's easy. You know, you never know where that's going to lead you. It could be on the other side of the world, you know. But it's no longer your life. And to relinquish that is one of the highest gifts you can get. What, what can you give God? The, the, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. What are you going to give God with this limited window of time that you have? Look, we're all dying. That's what Ecclesiastes 9 is saying. It's, we're all going to the grave. So you might as well love the wife of your youth and enjoy your bread and try and keep your garments clean and do a few things in God's service and and trust that he has a better plan for your life than you could ever possibly conceive. It just shows up again and again. And it's beautiful because that gives you quite a bit of peace, doesn't it? If if this is what you believe, this scripture here in Psalm 46, a psalm of Korah, they say it this way, God is our refuge and strength. You know what? He's a very present help in times of trouble. Well, that should be a comfort, shouldn't it? And if you can wrap your mind around that and believe that and trust that, and I know it's hard, that changes things. That absolutely fundamentally changes things. Now, I just want to show you a picture of a man who believed that, that that God was his refuge and his strength, a very present help in times of trouble. You know, Gethsemane, this is the Lord Jesus Christ who believed that God was a very real and present help in times of trouble, and here he is in the garden, in the most challenging hours of his life, facing eminent crucifixion that was designed to cause more pain than anybody could possibly conceive. Mark chapter 14. When they came to the place which was named Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, just sit here while I pray. And he takes with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be sore amazed. He was like out-of-body experience. He was very heavy. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Just wait here and watch. And he went forward a little and he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And here he is. This is what he says. He says, Abba, Father, look, all things are possible unto thee. You could take this cup away from me if you wanted. And then he capitulates. And then he does what we're all asked to do at some point, even daily. Not my will, but your will be done. I just trust you. I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but I trust you. And this is the promise that Galatians talks about. Galatians chapter 4. He says, now when you are baptized, you are sons. You are heirs according to the promise, the promise of Abraham, righteousness by faith. He says, when you're baptized, you are Abraham's seed. We said that that's Christ a moment ago. You're, you're Christ's. And now God has sent into your hearts the spirit of his son, crying, Abba, Father. It's like saying, Dad, Dad. It's probably one of the most intimate ways of referring to the Father in Scripture. And he says, you can do that. You have access to that real and present help in times of trouble if you're willing just to call out into God in faith. That's what he's saying. Galatians 4 says that. Romans 8 says the same thing. 
You've not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear. You've received, you've been adopted into the family of God. And you can cry out, Abba, Father. Now that's incredible because that's the method that Christ had for overcoming. This is one of the great problems of the Trinity if you think that, God, that Jesus is God. It just really erodes this whole concept of how Christ overcame his nature. But if you don't believe his nature was human, it just completely collapses the whole method of overcoming. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 says, this is how Christ overcame. In the days of his flesh, when he, he prayed, he offered up prayers and supplication with strong tears and crying. Now look, none of us want to have crazy. None of us want to weep. None of us want to cry. But when you see Jacob wrestling with the angel in the scripture, when you go into Hosea, when you go into the, the, the commentary of what was actually happening, he was weeping. He was crying out unto God. So Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong because I know what to do. I know where my real and present help in my time of trouble is. It's with God. And that's how Christ overcame. And he was heard in that he feared Though he were a son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Now we get back to our verse. All that exposition on one verse. It says that their works are in the hands of God. No man knows either love or hatred by all that is before them. Now my question for you is, how do you know what love is? Your parents? Your siblings? Maybe. But that's just human love. That's us just trying to do the best that we can for one another. But, but the way that we know love comes from 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. I put it in the New King James because it says, by this we know love. The King James says, perceive love. How do we know what love is? This man, Jesus Christ, was willing to lay down his life for us. And the imperative then becomes that we should also lay down our life for one another. Not literally, we're not necessarily literally dying for one another. Christ died for us, but it's, it's breaking our will for the sake of someone else to help them along, to do something that maybe we didn't necessarily want to do, or it wasn't in our plan for the day, but, but instead we divert the course and we help somebody else to the kingdom. That's what love is. That's a scriptural definition of love in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. He says, look, you didn't know it before based on history. All right, now we're at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 2. And, and here are two groups of people. I think you can see that pretty clearly, I imagine. And what Solomon says is in chapter 9, verse 2, he says, all things come to all alike. There's one event. And my question for you is, what do you reckon that one event is? That one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and the unclean, to him that sacrifices and to him that doesn't, and to the good and to the sinner, he that swears and he that fears an oath. What do you reckon that one event is? That's right, it's death. It's death. And so he says in verse 3, there's an evil among all things that are done under the sun. And there's one event unto all. And here's the answer. It's contextually at the end of the verse. You see the last word in the verse? Dead. That's the one event. Yes, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live and after that they go to the dead. 
So, so he's boiling it right down. He, he, is, he is just making it as basic and fundamental. And I reckon when he was talking to the Queen of Sheba with all her, her entourage and all these remarkable worldly possessions she had, what do you think he talked to her about? He said, look, it's wonderful you have all these things. <laughs> What's going to happen when you die? And he just cut right through it. He just said to her, well, what's going to happen? And he didn't leave her hanging just to walk away with, with you know, some intrigue and, and some great cliffhanger to say, well, good luck with that. He gave her hope. And that's why her breath was taken away. She was, she was just totally knocked over. Because there's a way through death. There's a way through death, and it requires faith that God can resurrect you to life again. And then he says this famous verse, he says, and this is, a, this is a question that's going to come in a second. He says in verse 4, he says, For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. You know, sometimes life gets so full of grief that you just feel like checking out. You know, you just go, how much worse can this get? You know? And I don't think anybody's been... Anybody ha it's not that anybody, everybody hasn't thought that way at some point in their life. You just go, well, what's the point of this? How long is this madness going to go on? So, so why does he say that, you know, it's better to have hope, he says. It's better to be joined all the living because when you're alive, at least you have hope. Hope of what? Hope of just eating your bread and having some glass of wine and, you know, enjoying the wife of your youth. Is that, is that as far as it goes? Well, he elaborates in verse 5. He says, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. And he's real unequivocal about this. You know, this really is a devastating argument to the idea of the immortality of the soul. He says, The dead don't know anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Now, here's the core idea of the evening what, what is the reward? And unless that's clear in your mind, unless that is sharp in focus, things tend to get convoluted, especially when you're in grief. So my question is, well, what reward? That's what he said. You see it here? He said, for the living know that they shall die, but the dead don't know anything. If you're alive, at least you, you may have the chance at a reward. And is that just the reward of hard work and getting a good pay? Or just, you know, you work, work your tail off during the day and, and you get a good night's rest. Is that the reward? No, he's talking about something far greater than that. Again, we go back to Abraham. This is in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham's, let's, go to, let's just go to Genesis 15 for a tick, please. Because you, gotta, you have to enter into Abraham's mindset and where he was emotionally when the Lord God said this to him. After these things, this is Genesis 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And, and, and look, I just love how Abraham just talks openly to God. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And this is what, and Abraham said, behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. 
And behold, the word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that cometh forth out of thine own bowels shall be thy heir. And he brought him forth, and here's the promise. He said, Look now toward heaven, tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And Abram believed Yahweh, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So, so what's the reward? Well, for Abraham specifically, it was the, the, the multiplicity of his descendants. But, but how could that happen unless there was a future reward? So there's something implied in that, and that is that there are better days to come. Now, now believers throughout history have believed in this reward. So you go to uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, and this is Boaz talking to, to Ruth. And he says, Yahweh recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. Boaz knew the reward. That was the thing that drove him and focused his attention. It's what changed his daily experience. He had a clear perception of what that reward is. And I reckon that is extremely powerful. The, the, the Proverbs say it this way, where there's no vision, people perish. And, and that's true because if you can't keep that clear in your mind, you can get depressed very easily. You can feel like checking out. And it just shows up all through Scripture because it's thematic. This is a Psalm of David, Solomon's dad. Psalm 58, verse 11, a Psalm of David, where there is, this David says, truly there is a reward for the righteous. Remember, righteousness is by faith. Truly, he is a God that judges in the earth. He's going to talk about the protection of the saints when, when God judges the earth and the, the life that they'll then live. It's interesting, the disciples came to the Lord Jesus. And they said, Peter said, Lo, Lord, we've left everything and decide to follow thee. He's asking about the reward. And you notice that, that Christ doesn't upbraid him. He doesn't tell him off. He doesn't say, you shouldn't think that way. Don't worry about it. He says, truly I say unto you, that there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. Now that's a remarkable verse because it's twofold. It says that the reward is present and future. You see how important that is. Living an honest life, living a life of integrity based on scriptural principles and, and trying to be a Christ-like person, trying to be a person that brings out the good in others and to have the character of God keeps you from all sorts of madness. It does. I mean, it really does. If you don't, if you don't walk in the ways of light, you're, you're just going to make a mess of your life. That, that's, that's real. And all you have to do is look on the TV or look outside the world and you just see the world's in madness because they reject the principles of God. Now, you can't break the commandments. You can only break yourself against the commandments. Have you ever heard that before? Like, whether you keep God's commandments or not, God's no different, is he? But if you don't keep the commandments and you sleep around with a bunch of people and you get this person pregnant, you got kids over here and kids over there and kids over there, your life is a mess. You're worse off for it. If you lie and you cheat and you steal and you thieve and you have no integrity, you're hurting yourself. And everyone knows that if, if the world actually drank in the principle of, of loving their neighbor as their self, 
the world would be a better place by simply keeping the principles of God. So, so it is true what Christ says in verse 30 there, where you will be better off in the present age. And as a body of believers, you've got people that will help you along to the kingdom. You've got a support network. And that's invaluable. You, you, can't, you can't put a price on what the support network of people that love God is. You can't. It is absolutely invaluable. And, and one other way of, of looking at this verse is you can go on the other side of the world and somebody will put you up in their house and feed you and give you a soft bed to sleep in. They never met you before a day in their life. That's just a simple practical application of in this present time you will receive manifold more. But the thing that I really want you to think about is what it means in there in purple and then life to come, life everlasting. It's, it's, it's hard to think about. Now let's just turn up Revelation real quick because this is our last little verse on uh, what the reward looks like. It's such a beautiful picture in Revelation 21, right at the end of the Bible. So we have a few verses together of what that reward is that God willingly wants to give us as a gift of grace. Revelation 21, we'll just read 1 through 5. So John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there were no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And you know these classic verses. Verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto John, Write, for these words are true and faithful. That's the future. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But it's worth thinking about. All right, we go back into Ecclesiastes for our exposition, our analysis. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 6. It says also, their love and their hatred and their envy. Envy is the thing that causes hatred. Those things that are natural to us, they're perished. Neither have they any more portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. He's unequivocal about the fate of those that reject God, those that are not interested. It's superlative language. The word perish, there's no getting around that. That is dead. All right, and then he says, here's the conclusion. What's the conclusion? He says in verse 7, Now go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepts thy works. Now when does God accept your work? When you do something that's pleasing to him, or when he's involved in the work? And he does the work through you. There's a very different concept there. There's a very different mindset than going, hey, I better do this because then God will be happy with me. 
That's one mindset, and that's a traditional mindset. But I'm going to share with you a much better mindset, and that is, hey, God, let's work on this together. Unless you build the house, I'm going to work here in vain. Unless you're working in me to do something that I cannot do, I'm only working in my capacity. Two different mindsets. So try as hard as you can, your capacity is limited. But God accepts works of faith. So when Cain and Abel bring their their sacrifices, their offerings, God rejects Cain's offering. Why? Because he wasn't happy with the, the, the stuff? No, it was the heart that he was looking at. That's why it says he rejected Cain and his offering. It wasn't done with the heart of faith. He wasn't involved in the work. So the conclusion that Solomon is saying here in these next four verses, he's saying, enjoy your life, keep a happy heart, Eat your bread and enjoy it. Drink your wine with a merry heart. And do, let God work in your life is what he's saying. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 8, Let thy garments always be white. The robes of the righteous, the linen garments are white. Righteousness is by faith. He says, let your head lack no ointment. And live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of thy life that is vanity, which he has given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vain life, that's thy portion in this life, and thy labor which thou takest under the sun. So he's saying you should enjoy life, you should enjoy it, and be thankful for what God has given you. And then he says in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going, can't do anything then. Now, why would he say whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your strength? Go for it. Why does he say that? Because, young people, as you know, this isn't, this isn't rocket science. Working hard and achieving something and growing is satisfying. It is inherently satisfying. When you work on something and you put your effort into it and you revise it and polish it and make it, make it the best you can do, there's something immensely satisfying about that, isn't there? And that's why he says that in that verse. Whatever your hand finds to do. He doesn't say this is what you should do. He says that's over to you. You get to choose what you, get, what you want to do. But do it well because it's satisfying. And the opposite of that is on the screen. Some of the greatest disappointments in life are with oneself. When you don't work hard and you know you could have. When you could have done better and you just kind of sloughed it. Just kind of, eh, just did it just to get it done. And somebody looks at you and goes, I thought you could do better than that. What do you, what, why'd you give me this when I know you could do that? You don't feel satisfied with yourself. And that is a great disappointment because you wreck your own integrity. You hurt yourself. You wound yourself in the process when you don't put forward your best. So that's why he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might because there's something inherently satisfying at that. So when you come to Luke chapter 13 at verse 28, when you come to this portrait of the judgment seat, it says, look, at that time there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourself, you're thrust out. Now there wouldn't be weeping and gnashing of teeth if it wasn't something that was attainable. You would just go, ah, well, whatever. I couldn't have been there anyway. But if it was within possibility, 
by God's grace, and you said, nah, can't be bothered, eh, I'm not going to really try much for that, or I'm not going to take an interest in that. It's on offer, and you go, eh, can't be bothered. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's because you've let yourself down. And that is one of the greatest disappointments in life, is when you let yourself down. Oh, it's, it's bitter when you disappoint other people and you weren't there for them and you failed. You have to apologize. It is very frustrating. But there's no frustration worse than letting yourself down and letting God down in the process. So back to our verse. Again, we get our two categories of people. You've got the righteous, the believers, and the unrighteous, the unbelieving. And so he returns, Solomon returns, and he saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong, nor yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to the men of skill, but time and chance, he says, happens to them all. Now, one of the great things that Solomon says in this chapter is that, that you can be a Christian and you're still going to suffer. You, you could be an unbeliever and you're still going to suffer. Everything happens to everybody. It's not just because you're a Christian that, that, you know, you're protected all of a sudden. In fact, Paul says it's through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. So, so when it says that time and chance happens to them all, while I do think that that them, that pronoun them, is referring to those that think that they're swift and they think that they're wise and they think that they've got understanding and they're skilled and so on and so forth, the fact of the matter is that, that all things happen to everybody regardless of your belief. Regardless of whether you're a follower of Christ or you're not, it can be guaranteed that there's going to be things that are going to happen to you in life that you wish didn't, right? And so the question becomes, well, how do we keep a higher plane of thought when those things happen? See, the Bible talks about a race in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. This is what Paul says. He says, know ye, know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. He says, run that you may obtain. If you're going to be involved in the race that is life, you might as well go for something useful and valid and important, something that's, that's actually going to have a, an end, a, a proper prize. Again, that word race shows up in the beginning of Hebrews 12, just after the chapter on faith. And here it says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily does beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How do we do that? We look to our author and finisher of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's his example. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and now he is set down at the right hand of God, and then in verse 3, we, we get this, this great instruction of not to be weary. That when we are, we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now just consider him. Consider him that, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Otherwise, you're going to be weary in your mind. When you're going through it and there's so much pressure, you feel like you're just not even keeping your head above the water. Just think about Christ for a moment. Now we're back to our Ecclesiastes and pulling it apart. Verse 12. For man also knows not his time. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's around the next bend in the road. Unfortunately, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, that remains to be seen. 
For man also knows not his time, just like a fish that they're taken in an evil net or birds that are caught in the snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. So those are our verses. I just want to point out something real quick from The Blood of Christ by Robert Roberts. It's just interesting when you get back into Genesis and they were given the imperative to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What could God have done? They sinned. They were disobedient. And what Brother Robert says in this little itty bitty pamphlet on the atonement, it's kind of hard reading, but it's got some super useful stuff in it. He says there are three options. One, should God just have said, eh, well, whatever, doesn't matter. I mean, I told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if they did, they would die, but I'm just going to turn a blind eye to it. Is that what God should have done? Not a possibility. If he did that, his word wouldn't be true, and God is true. So that wasn't an option. What about option two? Should God just blink all of his creation out of existence? Just done? Then why did you create it in the first place? Okay, that's not really an option either because that would be admitting failure. Like I've created this thing and now I'm just going to destroy it. What was that about? Just an exercise in futility. And so Robert Roberts says really the third option was the only one in some sense that God could do. The best option, the one that we find ourselves in. God leaves this door of mercy open for all those that would come to salvation through Christ. And that's the opportunity that's presented to us. That there is a mercy seat that we can come to God through Christ. It's open and available to all. God would that none would perish. And so that's the situation we find ourselves in. The door of mercy is open for those that seek God and his righteousness. And finally, I just want to kind of wrap up with what, is a, what I think is a very logical premise for thinking about God. This was called Pascal's Wager. And we're starting to draw our thoughts to a close for this evening. Pascal's wager was this, uh, well, it's not a very flattering picture, but uh, 17th century French philosopher. Okay, there he is. And, and here's what he did. I should have found a better picture. So. Um, what he did is he put on a little continuum. He said, um, okay, let's just think about this very logically, very coldly and rationally, logically. And he said, on one side, you've got, okay, there is a God. And then on the other side, you've got no God. And then you say, okay, the other continuum, the other, the y-axis would be, uh, you know, reward or, you know, death. And, and what he logically deduced is he said, okay, say you say that there is no God and you're right. Well, what's the outcome of that? Nothing. You die. Okay. He said, what if you say that there is no God and you're wrong? Ooh, you're in trouble then. You're still dead. But you had an opportunity and you missed it. That's the two options for saying no God. Now let's, let's think about the other two options. The option of believing in God, but you're wrong. Well, we just said a moment ago that if you believe in God and you keep his commandments, you're actually going to have a better moral life now than you would have otherwise. It will keep you from all sorts of trouble. So, so say that, you know, you do believe in God, but you're wrong. Well, what's the downside of that? Not much. You're still dead, just like somebody who didn't believe in God. And there was no God. And just like somebody who believed in, didn't believe in God, and there was a God. They broke dead. That's why there's nothing there on the screen. Hopefully I'm not confusing you. And finally, the best option, which is there in blue. The one that's true. The one that there is a God, and you do believe in him, and you do live a life of faith. There is infinite upside 
There is eternal paradise. There is life everlasting without this battle in ourselves against sin and death. There is infinite upside. So Pascal's wager was that if I was a betting man, the best place to put your money, so to speak, the best option, and this isn't even counting all the scripture that corroborates the truth. He said, your best option, even if you don't know any of this, is to bet that there is a God, and maybe, just maybe, if there is, you'll end up with this eternal joy, this eternal reward. Now, what I like about that is that it's, a, it's completely logical. Now, I'm not sure if you're able to follow all that, but, but nevertheless, I think it's a, it's a useful way of, of thinking about God. Now, young people, you know, we're affected by what we know. But we're not just affected by what we know. We're actually affected by what we feel about what we know. Now, there are a lot of different ways to feel. For example, if we feel that, uh, you know, these Christadelphians, you know, I don't want any part of that faith. They're just they're mean, they're cruel, you know, they try to act like they're good, but they're, but, you know, they're hypocrites. I'm just tired of it, uh, you know. And, and that's your attitude. That's your feeling. How do you think your life would unfold for the next five years if, if that was the dominant thought in your mind? You know, these people I hang out with, they're, they're all rubbish and they're, they're, they just don't hold up to the standards they believe. They profess this, but they talk out of the other side of their face. They're hypocrites. Now, do you think that that would affect your relationship with God? Feeling that way? And we can all feel that way at times. Well, certainly it can. You can't escape the accumulation of your feelings. But it's not easy to change your attitude, is it? How do you change your attitude? You have to change your thoughts. And so God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And the beauty of this is that, that even though we've got these natural feelings of frustration and, and these feelings of angst towards each other at times and human nature, this is able to change not just our thoughts, but our feelings as well. That's incredibly powerful. So where can we go to change our thoughts and our feelings? Well, where can we go to, to stop being so cynical and negative? How can we get another spirit like Caleb in the, the time of uh, Joshua? Caleb, it says, had a different spirit. How do we get a chance to change this dismal future, this dismal present for a brighter future? Now, what would happen if instead you changed your thought to... You know, instead of having this feeling about everybody being negative or hypocritical, what if, you, what if you change your thought to something like this, that no matter what's happening around me, I will still praise God. I will still worship God. No matter how many friends turn their back on me, no matter how many bad decisions the arranging board may make or, or youth group committees make, whatever that is driving you bonkers, what happens if instead of thinking about that, you say no matter what's happening around me, I will still maintain my faith in God. Now, what would happen in five years if that was your core belief? You think you'd be a different person in five years than, than the one that cultivates all this negativity and cynicism around them? I imagine you would. You'd be a very different person. And those are the friends that Daniel had, for example. When they go to Nebuchadnezzar, look, you can chuck us in the fire, that's fine. You can do whatever you want to us. And our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, it's a remarkable phrase. It's remarkable uh, conviction and resolve that, that God is true. That no matter what, I'm still going to maintain faith in God. That's a powerful, powerful attitude. 
Another thing that affects your future and your present is how you feel about the past. It's easy to let the things of the past affect the present and the future. It's easy to let those things overwhelm you and instead what they should do is instruct you. How do you feel about those past hurts and those past losses and those past difficulties? The times that you failed and the times that it just didn't work out right. How do you feel about all the accumulation of those things? Do those things haunt you? Because they can. How do you feel about that? It's, it's going to greatly affect your present and future unless you do something about it. One of the major things also is how you think about the future. And really, that's what this whole talk is about this evening. How you feel about the future. One wise man said our future is affected by the price we're willing to pay and our perception of the promise. It's not very easy to pay the price if you can't see the promise. He said, young people are difficulty, having difficulty in paying the price because they, they can't see the promise. Now, all of us wouldn't mind paying the price of, of staying up or, or committing our lives to God or, or doing things differently if we could have a clear vision of what it is that's promised. To help each other, we have to see clearly what's been promised to us. We have to help each other pay the price to do better things, to spend our time more wisely and, and not in, in foolish ways that have nothing to do with God. What would we do if we could see the promise, if we could see it clearly? Well, I bet you the most extraordinary things. You take a look at Hebrews 11. Those are all people that could clearly see what God had promised. They were fully persuaded of what God had promised. Would you crack the books? Would you burn the midnight oil? Would you engage in the extra thinking and the study, the extra disciplines, if you could see clearly what it is that God had promised you? But it's not just that, it's also about how we feel about one another. You have to have clarity around what constitutes a good life, a noble life, and that is helping each other to the kingdom of God. While Ecclesiastes says, you should enjoy the wife of your youth. You should enjoy your bread and your wine. You should lead a life that leads to white garments and a, the righteousness of the faith, righteousness by faith, that whatever you do, you should do with all your heart. The truth of the matter is, young people, we're all going the way of death. Now, you can't succeed by yourself. You have to appreciate others. It takes other people to build a strong youth group. It takes a whole group to build a strong school or a strong ecclesia. It takes all of us. You can't succeed by yourself, can you? You need God, and you need Christ, you need your brothers and sisters, you need your aunties and uncles and the grandparents. You can try to go alone, but you won't be happy, nor will you be successful. Finally, it's about how you feel about yourself, knowing your worth, and that's big. And your worth has nothing to do with what you can do. Anything that you can do, God can do better. He doesn't need you to do anything. He needs you to trust him. And he needs you to know that he values you. Because what's the evidence of that? That he gave his only begotten son for you and for me. That Christ has died for us. That's the price of redemption, paid with his blood. That's how much you're worth to God. Not based on what you do, but based on his love. How valuable are you? What could you do in faith if you believed in the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of God and Christ in you? There is no telling. What could you do if you spent the time? What if you prayed more diligently, if you read more carefully, if you loved more deeply? 
It became less self-conscious. You saw the promise more clearly. That person, who that person is in you, would be a force for good to all that you come in contact with. What could you become? If you start understanding how valuable you are, you will begin a whole new life experience. 